Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We'll rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct-to-video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched Afraid of the Dark. Afraid of the Dark tells the story of a young boy named Lucas, played by Ben Keyworth, as he navigates life with his blind mother and her blind friends. This small community is being shaken by someone who is brutally attacking the blind residents, picking them off one by one. Everyone seems suspicious to Lucas, but is everything the way it appears? Screenplay by Mark Peplow and Frederick Seidel, directed by Mark Peplow, and premiered at the Tokyo International Fantastic Film Festival in October 1991. I'm assuming you haven't seen it, but have you heard of this movie? No, I've never me either. seen or heard of this movie. Yeah, me either. Um, it was trying to be Hitchcock, I think. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I saw it, because it was interesting. Like it... it was interesting. I don't know if it fully accomplished what it wanted to for me personally. I was into it until like maybe 15 minutes towards the end I was like the last the last little bit yeah I think what what bothered me is like it didn't really okay the movie is basically two halves right Um, like almost literally halfway through there's this big twist that happens um but I don't feel like the second half fully reconciles with the first half and ties the you know I don't the know the two it, together yeah because there's too much stuff that happens in the first half that is illusionary I guess but there's no corresponding reason given in the second half for all of those events I don't know does that make sense I eat. It doesn't tie up the loose sort ends, of. I guess. Like it's in all like this entire movie is all in this little boy's mind. The first half is, yeah. But the second half even we the get the second half? Well, I mean the the last fifteen minutes I would say are, but like the, the second half we're seeing it from the quote unquote real world perspective, you know, from the parents' perspective in a sense. Um and you know, so that's meant to be, you know, like, this is the real situation, and here's what's going on, and the first half is, like, his psyche, projections, all this other stuff. So, I mean, it's tough to say that it's all in his head when we have, like, the, the mother and the father talking about, you know, the the eye surgery stuff, and characters are completely different than what they were in the first half yeah in his so head yeah. right <laughs> but it's 
like his anxiety about losing his eyesight late as you know he wasn't born blind he's becoming blind as an 11 year old boy so it's like this anxiety of not being able to see after seeing for like 10 years ish and then the anxiety of getting whatever eye surgery he was gonna get looming in the future yeah and there's there's other psychological stuff you can examine there in terms of the relationships too that are explored and, and really you know could be interesting to unravel i just don't think that they i don't know i don't i don't think it tied up as well as it needed to um i, I understand where the movie's trying to go right like you know because uh i like, mean it's, it's a scary all, it's a scary like it's all yeah to lose your sight as like a 10 year old kid i mean that's one of, you know you don't really necessarily fear dying all the time when you're really little I mean, I did, but, you know, I was a paranoid yeah. kid. But, I mean, also the idea of just, like, going blind suddenly or, like, through an accident or whatever. And in this case, it's just progressive vision loss. You know, that's... Yeah, I can understand that being extremely traumatic and frightening. And so, you know, you have these ideas of him being the outsider in his own family because he already kind of is. And, you know, just having that being progressed and having to rely on people his entire life after that and becoming the other and you know thought of of less thought of as less than because that's how he approaches things in the beginning of this movie too like that's how he sees all of the blind people in the beginning of the movie is less than yeah does he really though I think so. I mean, what what kind of solidifies that a bit is, um, or at least people that can be taken advantage of. That's also part of it. So I guess that, you know those kind of go hand in hand. So he sees, I don't know, he sees how everyone in the world is treating these blind people, um, with you know it, what seems like secret contempt or just you know, especially with Rose, a lot of like leering creepiness. But then when he follows that other blind person, Lucy, and purposely does it just to scare her because he can, that's what I think kind of like drove that point home to me is, you know, oh, this is, this is an animal I can play with. You know, this is, I don't see them as a human being with feelings. I'm just yeah, gonna, like, when know, he was in there. Freak her out because I can in that, um, I don't even know, is it a hospital? Like, the whatever the gathering place where all the blind people went. Yeah, it's a clinic for the blind. I don't remember the name of it, but it's, you know... Yeah, it's, like, a, it's a like, gathering place for them to, like, have classes and just have a communal like space and yeah. whatever else. Maybe some sort of treatment if they need for treatment all the or whatever. people that live in that community, and he... It seems as if he's the only child in that community, and it's like he's living in this world of blind people, and he's one of the few people that can see. And also, I thought 
he was the only child up until, I don't know, almost halfway when he saw other children, like, vandalizing a car or yeah. dancing on her and, like, jumping on it and stuff. Yeah. But he's just kind of, like, alone in his head throughout the entire movie, I guess. But... Yeah, they kind of he... try to explain that away in the first part by saying the kids are on holiday, but, like, in... Like yeah, just, he has, like... So almost every other kid, like, leaves town except for him during this holiday. Yeah, they don't say what but that's holiday the, it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, that's just the So excuse. a lot of the kids are gone, and he has no one to play with. And so that's, that's why he's just hanging around the... The air, the like, that neighborhood. Much, yeah. But, yeah, he starts... But it seems as if he's done this a lot because he goes into that clinic area and he's stealing sandwiches and that's when one of the men, the blind men hears him, like, you know, hears, you know, mm-hmm. like the crinkling of the plastic bag and whatever. Yeah. It's like, who is that? Who's there? And then he's, you know, like three feet in front of this blind guy and he's just being very quiet and then waiting for people to calm down before he can sneak off and take these sandwiches it's it seems as if he does that a lot yeah he probably does it, it, and again i think that's part of his like taking advantage projection yeah it's like okay well if i'm gonna become blind then that's a problem because i know how i would be taking advantage of these people and i don't want that to happen to me um so and that whole scene happened you know after i think like the third attack and so everyone in that clinic is on edge and so yeah who's there who's blah 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 yeah, and then everyone... like the rest of the people come in is like oh we're all here oh it's happy and and he's able to escape with the sandwiches that he then feeds to toby the dog yeah the movie starts out with an attack and then the mom we find out that the mom is blind the father he's like a policeman mm-hmm. and um an off-screen attack. We don't get to see the yeah, we attack don't, at all. They just hear about it, and she's like, they're talking together, and Lucas is overhearing them talk. And the mother is just like, I don't want to talk anymore because I don't want Lucas to find out. And what was interesting about that scene but Even is though like, he's listening the entire time. Yeah, so Lucas is like, at the staircase, you know, uh, in between the, the, the railings, and the mother Miriam is staring right at him and saying, I'm frightened. And I thought that that was intentional, not really... I'm sure it was intentional both ways, but I mean, before I knew that she was blind, because it wasn't 100% obvious at that point. Yeah. You know, it's like the first opening scene. And so she's staring him down and saying, I'm frightened. Um, making it seem like she was frightened of her son. Yeah, that's like, what that they she mean. knew that he had done it, right? Um, and then you know, the scene progresses a little bit more. And it's like, oh, she's blind. That wasn't intentional in the way that I thought. But Mark Peplow probably did still intend to make to you have... think that he did that, it. Because that's yeah. what I was starting to think. Because whenever there was an attack, he was there. He was always, He's, like, within yeah. the vicinity of these attacks. Yeah, Lucas is around just kind of, like... Walking around... Like a peeping Tom voyeur type of a person yeah. on everybody. Not really, you know, not, not always like in a, in a creepy... perverted way, but sometimes. Not... But yeah. mostly just a curiosity. Yeah. Not... Yeah, not in a creepy way. And then... But they show other 
people who are not blind that are repairmen. Like, you have the window washer guy, and then you have the other guy who does, like, all the locks. And the ice cream guy. Yeah. you. All of them are creepy. They all are portrayed as being very creepy, and he's looking at them as possible attackers of these blind people and it's they're mm-hmm. all blind women that mm-hmm. get attacked yeah the idea is everyone is a suspect right you know um or all of the people with sight are suspects yeah and i think what aids that is i mean you know the creepy guy outside washing windows is like leering in and then at some point he just sneakily sort of like not really but he climbs inside the window and just starts whistling inside the room and everyone freaks out but then one of the ladies like oh that's just the window washer so he just does that daily <laughs> it's like oh what was that noise oh it must have been the window washer opening the window but the whistling i don't know if they show the reaction to that i think it cuts before they show the reaction to that um but yeah like you have the locksmith guy because of the attacks, they're, they're sending somebody to come around and change all the locks mm-hmm. to all the, the residents. Because the clinic provides housing for all of these people in the community, apparently. That's part of the the thing. And so, you know, the clinic hired somebody to go around and changing all the locks. And he's staring um, yeah, as well. Just and, acting and staring creepily at all the blind women. I mean, it's mostly think. Rose. Like, we're following, like, him... So Rose is like Miriam's friend in this half of the yeah. movie. Um, That's she's like getting married. Virtually the only one who's not wearing sunglasses in that entire room. The only one who also isn't is Edith, who was attacked off screen in the very first stage. And so she has the bandage on her face and you can see her mm-hmm. um, smoky eye, you know, um, contact lens or whatever they use to, to do that. So, you know, the intention in Rose has, like, the top button of her dress unbuttoned, and so, you know, she's meant to be sexualized, I guess, you know? Well, because there's parts where he is looking, like, he becomes, uh, Lucas becomes kind of like Rose's companion like he's like i don't know if the mom told him to do this or he just started walking rose around that neighborhood sort of helping her because she doesn't want to be attacked i think it's a little bit of both like the first scenes he offers to or well he he, he goes with his mom yeah the, the mom takes him to the clinic and then rose has to leave early to do um, some photography stuff with her fiance, and so Lucas accompanies him to the photography studio, and they stop and get ice cream on the way there. And you know, the ice cream guy is like leering and making sexual comments towards her and everything too. Yeah. Um, that was after the window washer had come in and kind of like leered, and so. After another attack happens, the one that happened on Lucy, he's... Oh, no, no. I think it's after the train. After one of the attacks, he's, like, running to possibly go see his mom, make sure that his mom is okay, because he knows that someone blind was attacked, but he doesn't know who. 
Yeah, but he, and so he's he runs running to make sure that things are okay. Rose. Runs into Rose instead and just stays with Rose like the entire time, instead. And that's when we see the the locksmith people. There's a lot to unpack there. I think it's you know you could be like a Freudian relationship, knowing what's going on in the second half. Um, right, and because... then he also it's kind of just going back where where they live this neighborhood in London. He's like their little. It's kind of yeah. like this apartment complex where you know all the blind people live it looks like that i mean the other kind of like this giant spread out some yeah courtyard situation and then their backyard is this it's a cemetery cemetery so he's like surrounded by death or like blind people and it like makes him feel even more alone because and then his friend is that dog is the dog toby mm-hmm. which, he... is, which belongs to his neighbor who um i don't know if this is established in the first half or not but um rose's fiance is the owner of the dog i'm not sure if that's true in the first half or not i thought it was like the whoever the groundskeeper of the cemetery was so we just never see the owner in the first half because it seems like toby stays in the cemetery to ward off any intruders the cemetery is yeah it's like his secret it's like his treehouse yeah he just goes to the cemetery like like this mausoleum type of a thing that's empty well not empty but you know empty enough it's shelter it's like a mini house Right? And, and, and that's like where his, he's eating his sandwiches that he stole. And, and he has like a cigar box full of like supplies and toys and stuff and whatever else in there too. So that's like his hangout. That's his secret little place that no one else knows about. And yeah, Toby, except for Toby the dog. Yeah, and Toby comes there to eat sandwiches with him. Um, and plays with him and whatever. And like he uses him as like, hey, you can be my guide dog. And like he closes his eyes and yeah, lets he's Toby pretending guide him to be like what, what it's like to be blind. Yeah. Um, the cemetery comes into play a lot more later, uh, <laughs> but it's, hmm. I, I'm just not sure what to, to talk about and what not to talk about. I guess, when do we reveal the ending? I mean, well, we're going to have to at some point. Here. So, I, I mean, after, just that first half is just... There's a bunch of, yeah, there's a bunch of... To the point where, I mean, it's, the, the last half is where he... Because his father is like, you know, in the beginning, he wakes up and he has this, like, Spider-Man thing. And everyone calls him Spider-Man and is, you know, saying, what's Spider-Man up to today type of thing. Yeah, he likes to pretend he's Spider-Man. Yeah, and he, like, his, in the beginning, his father said something like, oh, you snuck out again. So he, it's, like, a common thing for him to sneak out and go to the cemetery and hang out with Toby and it and, happens at night, too. And we yeah. see that happen at night when he, you know, eventually catches the killer, basically. Right. Yeah. And just one night where he is sneaking out to go meet with Toby, the locksmith guy is also in the cemetery. And then he's following the locksmith guy because he's like, well, what's this guy doing? Like, is he going to go kill someone? Because he thinks he's going to save the day, Lucas? No, I think actually Lucas... Okay, so Lucas is, is, I think, originally out to see Toby, but he also has a telescope with him. 
and at various different times again just adding to the voyeur nature of this thing and you know just focusing on sight above everything else you have you know this one scene where he has the telescope backwards and you see like the window washer guy on his bike who's riding past and he's whistling again three blind mice in this case because everything has to do with eyes and but at this nighttime scene he's out and he has his telescope and he's looking through all the different windows and like just peeping yeah, on kind different of, people i thought i think to be you know like the spider-man he's watching over all these blind people it could be, but not all of them are blind because you see like one guy watching TV. Yeah, um, but and just watching over the people. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the last one you see is you see Rose with her fiance kissing, mm-hmm. and that's when he notices the window washer also looking at Rose outside through the window, and then a chase sequence sort of pursues. But I think it's the, I'm not. I'm sorry, not the window washer. The locksmith. The locksmith guy. Um, I think the locksmith just starts chasing Lucas. I don't think it's the other way around. Oh, I because thought... at some point Toby comes in and chases chases after the locksmith, the locksmith and, and catches up and and that allows attacks Lucas to, him. Yeah, and allows Lucas to escape. But then that's when Lucas happens upon rose at her photo shoot yeah which is weird because how did rose get there so fast unless unless it wasn't rose in the window with the the fiance right i don't know that's i was like is this the same day but that's when he happens upon rose and she's now raining too yeah Unless this is an, another night, because we don't... But it's presented like it's the same night, so yeah. it's tough to say. Yeah. It, so, yeah, this leads to Rose at a photo shoot, and she's topless, and just wearing, you know, like a garter belt, and like, yeah. I don't know. So, like, the photographer, again, is, is creeping on her at the beginning. So, like, before the fiancé gets there for that initial photo shoot, he's like, oh, have you ever considered doing some... Modeling. You know, like modeling because you definitely have the body and the looks for it type of a stuff. Uh, and so apparently they made some sort of arrangement and now, yeah, here she is topless and wearing a cowboy hat. He brings in like a mechanical or like a, a horse. horse of some kind for her to sit on and do like a pinup shot. Yeah, and, and it's... Lucas is watching from a broken window uh, in the alley or whatever where you can see everything. And again, it's like one of those things where... Rose is basically looking right at him, but obviously can't see him. And so you have that, like, eye contact connection Mm -hmm. in his mind without it actually being there to add to the uh, potential pervertedness of it. And so... Yeah, then the photographer starts getting a little gross. Well, he grabs... He has a razor, which has been the weapon of choice of this killer... Well, not killer, because no one dies. Not a single person. Attacker, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, none of the women die. Yeah, all um, these people are getting slashed, like, in the face. Yeah. They're getting All mutilated. the blind women are being slashed in the face. Yeah. Well, does... I think one woman dies. I don't know. She's... Because she's, she's just like the stretcher, severe... but her eyes are open, and so I don't know if it's shock or She death. just got severely traumatized. Yeah. Because it... It's tough to say. It's... Yeah. It, but in... We only see... And the one on the train, we never hear what happens to her either. We just see, like, her hand 
with the blood on the poster after she gets attacked, the older red, like, fake-haired, a fake red-haired woman. Right. Uh, I don't remember her name, but... Yeah, we only see those two attacks. The woman that's that he, Lucas was in her apartment building, but then escaped it, and noticed her through the window, window being slashed. Yeah. And then the other Which one is... Which is a sequence that's weird because he's he sneaks into another person's house at the yeah. same time that the killer sneaks into Lucy's house. Yeah. And, you know, it's it sort of set up to make it think that... he did it. Yeah, or that he's in the same house at the same time at some point. Yeah. But instead they do this rear window type of thing where he has the, the telescope again and he can see Lucy at the window screaming for help across mm-hmm. the way. But yeah, they kind of set it up like a... Sort of like what we'll see in Silence of Lambs at some point where you have like this sequence where they make it seem like they're in the same location but they're not um right but anyway the woman at the the train station it you just see someone taking her glasses off yeah and and she freaks the fuck out she freaks out and she gets slashed so so yeah everyone knows that some it's someone is being the attacker is slashing women blind women yeah so Rose is posing on this horse and she's like, that feels weird. What's going on? Yeah. And you see him like starting to like cut up her leg, like slashing at her legs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Given like sort of like a paper cut type of a deep slash on, on each of her but thighs. But I was like, even if he wasn't the slasher, like what type of, what the fuck? What art is this? Yeah, I mean the the intention is yes. This is this is the scene where you know Lucas will come and save the day. Yeah, Lucas sees him Lu- grab the Lucas razor sees this and he has and he a knitting needle with him. Apparently, yeah, he carries knitting needles around a lot. I yeah, don't know. It, it, the knitting needle is very much a recurring theme. The mother Miriam teaches a knitting class at the clinic and stuff like that. And even in the second half, the knitting needles are a big thing. Uh, as we'll talk about more in a second. Yeah, so, so yeah, he, he you see Lucas charging after the photographer and sh- just stabs him right in the eye. Yeah, and that's the most gruesome part we've seen. Though. Oh, yeah. Um, so this now makes the second movie. The second half, but we don't... No, no, no. This, is, this is the second movie in 1991 that we've seen where a guy gets stabbed in the eye with the knitting needle after the unborn. Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, the second half of this movie where we were confused because we... it cuts like after he gets stabbed with in the eye with the needle, it it cuts away to the very first shot happening again where Lucas is on the bed with big you know glasses, big like goggle like Coke bottle glasses, tapping one of the lenses with a knitting needle. Mm-hmm. And then we just think it's the next day. <laughs> Right. But the, it turns out that this is Lucas in real life, maybe? Because now he, in turn, is becoming blind and everyone in his family can perfectly see. Yeah, it, it's a very strange sequence because he, you know, we see that shot and then we come down and here's Rose dancing in her wedding dress with Frank, who is Lucas's dad. And we're like, okay... Okay, so the wedding's gonna happen. Like we know, yeah. Rose is getting married, but it's like like our Rose and like why is Rose dancing with Frank? Like why are they so happy? And I thought it was like after the wedding or something. 
But as the scene progresses, we learn that Rose is Frank's daughter from a previous marriage, which is not the case in the first half. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and also now Miriam, Miriam is pregnant. Is now pregnant, which also was not true. And they can both clearly see there's, you know, obvious like indications in the way that they're talking and interacting and moving their heads and everything that, yeah, they both have perfect sight now. Yeah. So something is different about this half. And it's very jarring and confusing to us. Like, is this an alternate timeline? Like, what is going on? And now all of a sudden the locksmith appears as well. You and know, he's just like a friend. He's just a friend of the family. He's, you know, someone who's like helping with the wedding photos and, and whatnot. And he's given a name, Tom. Um, so here's here's Tom and everybody. And, and guess what? Rose isn't marrying, um, what's his name in the gym? Uh, he's she's marrying the photographer who was attacking her in the scene in previous. the first part yeah and so, his eye is not stabbed out so this is yeah then we soon realize this is all in Lucas's thoughts <laughs> yeah it's it's a really interesting thing and like this is where I think I have um, a bit of the problem with it you know because we see Edith we see Lucy at the wedding. So like it's basically like this is the wedding day. Everyone's going to the wedding reception. And so everybody from the first half is there. It's, you know, like Wizard of Oz, here we go. You know, yeah. you were there, you were there. And no one's no been one's attacked. Harmed. Yeah. No one is blind or even I, I don't know if anyone's even wearing glasses except for Lucas. Mm-hmm. I think it goes that far with it. But in his mind, he still feels like he has to be the protector. Because he has this, still this anxiety about this future eye appointment he has. And then also his impending new sibling. Like, he, he wants to be the protector. Yeah, he, he wants to be more important than he ultimately is. Especially as, like, a 10-year-old. Yeah, because he, he kind of is ignored. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of this stems from is okay he's he feels invisible and so you know making it so that he cannot see on top of already feeling like he's invisible it's basically like okay once i go blind i'm not going to exist yeah um and i think at the wedding he talks to anthony who is the photographer slash groom in this and he has this interesting conversation i think probably i don't know the best conversation in the movie in my opinion like where he's talking about you know how he no longer wants to be spider-man yeah and he's like oh well spider-man never wins he's like well wait a minute i thought spider-man always wins it's like no he doesn't win the bad guy always comes back well but it's a different bad guy each time not really like they're the same bad guy they just look different yeah they they change but yeah, so that's why I don't why want to be Spider Man anymore. It, but, but like Spider Man, sorry to cut you off there. Like he's part of his thing is like the Spidey sense. He can't yeah. rely on his vision. That's why. Yeah, he. That's yeah. I mean, he wants to be known as Spider Man. You know how yeah. little kids. He wants to be a hero, and this is hero. a hero who you know. And that's it's when it's not so much about seeing; it's about sensing. Other he also even has like you. that's the Spider Man toy that mm-hmm. we see in the beginning that kind of 
like he pulls on it and then the little spider man climbs up to the top of his wall mm-hmm. like this weird alarm clock looking thing and he touches that like every day so you know he has that obsession with spider-man yeah and it's like he wants to be like a superhero but he doesn't want to be spider-man anymore yeah now he doesn't because want to be of this losing yeah. of his vision yeah i think things are just hitting him really hard at this point because he's so much closer to this surgery yeah that's going to like what so they what's the surge the surgery is just gonna make him yeah hopefully see better see better right not make him even more blind yeah i know it's i don't know when this movie takes place i don't know if it takes place in like 1990 ish or if it's a little bit earlier than that yeah, um, this is like pre-laser eye surgery or something. Yeah, like it, but, it, it really is before like LASIK and, and some of these, you know, cataract surgery, whatever. Like eye surgery, I know from work experience, has come a long, long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, 30 years ago, some of these things were a lot riskier and, and, and more difficult. And, yeah, so but, he has this pouring this poor like anxiety about it but it seems like no one really pays too much attention to his well it's tough anxiety because, or his yeah, it, like internal struggles yeah he's kind of like left to the side because a i think he's a child but obviously also you know the the you know so like sometimes children are just ignored because that's just how it is um, like people, it, this also just, you know, yeah, you don't, how you don't treat, yeah, you don't treat children's problems as if they're adult problems with, you know, yeah, they're, th- that's with the, that conversation with the, with that guy, it was just like, well, I mean, even though that was kind of like an adult conversation, that was the most adult conversation you <laughs> used to have, but yeah. you, have you know like how certain, well, I don't know, a lot of, back by the f- profoundness of yeah, the, that statement, the, a lot of adults don't know how to talk to kids. So yeah. like yeah. that guy was like trying to talk to him to be on the mm. level as Lucas, like, yeah. Oh, like we're just going to talk casually about Spider-Man. Cause right. I know that you really were or are obsessed with Spider-Man, but then it turns into this profound adult conversation yeah but i think that's part of it is just that he's a kid i think the other part of obviously is like everyone's consumed with this whole wedding thing and then everyone's also concerned with miriam's pregnancy yeah to the point where making him feel left out when she goes into labor at the wedding because of course we gotta stay some time there's this cliched scene where lucas falls and his glasses come off of his face and everyone's stomping on his glasses on their way to rush to like look at Miriam get into a car and go have her baby mm-hmm. as if that's super fucking important you know it's like oh everyone needs to like crowd the hallway cuz Miriam's going to have her baby like oh let's go look and watch her go down the yeah. stair maybe yeah. the bob, you know maybe the head will pop out as she's walking down or something but it's like everyone's you know who gives a shit about Lucas and his glasses or watching where I'm going, I'm just going to clomp all over your yeah. shit. Because movies. But then it, it, it like, jumps forward in time a few months because the baby is, like, however... She's like, still 
like a month? newborn. Okay. Well, like I mean, there's the there's a couple scenes in between three, because like months. the dad is you know he's like okay he brings the TV home he's like I gotta go back because visiting hours are gonna end soon and you know they're not allowing young kids at visiting hours and you don't have a babysitter but here's this brand new TV with bad reception and you know that's when he um, yeah <laughs> uh, it, he he does like the worst thing in the movie but. Um, I think before that, like even, you know, like in the wedding scenes and everything, we get this other glimpse of the whole situation, which is something that, again, doesn't really make tons and tons of sense. But basically, when Lucas's glasses are on, he sees the world for what it quote unquote really is, mm-hmm. you know, what the real world actually is, and everything's fine. When he takes the glasses off, or if they fall off, everyone becomes blind, except for yeah. him. So everything is, it's like reversed where he's the one who can see. It's basically like whatever is happening in the first half. Mm-hmm. That's but, what he sees when his glasses are off. He sees everyone else being debilitated and helpless and he's the good one. Yeah. And, but he's, when he does, he still does the waking up in the middle of the night and sneaking into the cemetery thing. Well, yeah, and, and, and he, like, the, the thing with Toby as his, well. It's like, yeah, yeah, he's supposed to feed Toby, Toby every night. Yeah, he's supposed to feed Toby every night. So that is still true in both stories. And in this case, Toby's owner is like Rose's mean, fiance like, from the first half, Jim. Yeah, their neighbor. Yeah, the neighbor. And, there, like, because there is a point where he, near the end, where he is becoming just a little bit more fearful and yeah the the roles reverse at some point at the very very end that's where i got lost and i was like this could have end and like right when the baby was born basically because after that it, it turned into like his internal like anxieties i get i just keep on saying that but He's he's like helping this one guy paint or wash the windows. So here we go with window washing. Yeah. And that's when Toby comes up to the window and he he always has his or the knitting needle with him like everywhere he goes. And he's helping with the washing of the windows and he sees Toby coming, trying to come into the window but from Lucas's perspective, it looks as if Toby is like Cujo and trying to attack yeah, him. Yeah, somehow his glasses come off, and when and and unfortunately the, the same thing. Like when his glasses are off, everything is reversed in yeah. his mind, and so yeah, if you can see him when when on, then you can't when it's off, and so everything that was good when your glasses are on is now evil in a sense. Yeah, and so his and... dog is yeah like. He thinks, he thinks Toby's attacking attack. him. He doesn't recognize it as Toby and attacks it. And he, we don't see this, thank God. He stabs Toby in the eye. And this is where I was, I was like, okay, well, I'm, lo- I'm lost and done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because after that, it gets weird where the window washer guy that was, Lucas was helping, he hears like a yelp. Yeah. Like I heard like a dog was dying which yeah a dog was dying yeah but how did toby get 
Because later on we see Toby was... Lucas hid Toby, like, in their basement for however many days. It was like, yeah, like, the outside um, downstairs area where, like, the trash would be kept and stuff like that in the alley. Okay, but so it's I, like I don't know he if quickly... the dog, like, fell there to begin with or if he was in... Yeah, they don't show, like, they don't They don't show it, it, but it's or like... Or if he was inside the house and then, like, Toby just, like, brought him out later on because... I'm sorry, Lucas. Lucas knew uh, about... Because Lucas... And he had to clean up the... Bl- they show him cleaning up the blood. Yeah. From the dog attack. So it's like he knew that he killed the dog. Well, not only that, but he also makes up a lie because his dad comes home. Yeah. Because he's been alone this entire time. He says, okay, well, what happened? Like, why do you have blood on your shirt? He's like, oh, I cut my finger. And um, he has, like, a fake bandage on at that time. Well, real bandage, but it's covering up nothing. And then later on, when the dad leaves again, at dinner, he cuts his finger to you know, cover up the lie. Yeah. Because his dad does check. He's a cop and he's like getting suspicious. Like, well, I think something's going on. But like, yeah, it's tough to know what's going on in Lucas's head. because This it's, is it's where not I started to like, I don't know. This is where I started to trail off because I was like, okay, this is. It's around that time where things get difficult for the audience because it, it's clearly not just the glasses thing because uh, Lucas it's like, but he pretends like he doesn't. I guess he. I don't know if he's pretending or not. Like he pretends like he doesn't know what happened to Toby. Yeah, this is where but I'm like, okay, is he doesn't. really secretly a slasher? Like, is he going to start killing people? What was in the first part of the movie that he was afraid of that entire time? Yeah, and it's not just the first half that helps uh, us understand that he doesn't understand reality, but it's also simple things like. And it could be chalked up to just child's imagination, where he does have that knitting needle, but in one scene where he goes to see the eye doctor, who was like the lead of the clinic, the guy who says, "Who's in my? Who's in the kitchen?" Mm-hmm. Like he's now the eye doctor. Um, he calls it his telescope, so he never actually has a telescope. The telescope that he has in the first half of the movie, he actually steals from the house he breaks into, but in this one. The knitting needle that he stuffs in his sleeve is now his telescope, right? So, like, mm. you know, it's that kind of thing where you can see that he doesn't really have a full grasp of reality all the time, even with the glasses on. But how much of that is child's imagination and how much isn't? Um, kind of tough to tell. But then it gets really, really complex at the end where he's basically wanting to attack the newborn baby but because okay, it this has is... sight and he assumes that it like she, she's gonna go blind at some point anyway and so but he wants to also protect her like he wants to That's protect his her way but of protecting also... her yeah and this confused me so the okay the dad went to go to work he's home alone like he's where's the alone. mom so at what point? Because, like, when the mom and the baby are at the hospital, and then all the scenes with Lucas and the baby... Okay, Lucas supposedly also got a fever at some point, which is also how they're trying to explain away some of his behaviors. Like, he's sick, and he's supposed to be up and resting. But they're all, like, in the the downstairs kitchen talking, and Lucas just sneaks down and, like, is about to stab the baby when the dad comes in. But the rest of them are in the kitchen at that time. The baby's on the floor in his in her crib um, yeah like Rose but... and Tom and Anthony and um, Frank and Miriam they're all in the kitchen 
except Frank like hears something or something or whatever. That's when he gets up and just takes, happens to notice. Right yeah, before. he takes the baby because the baby is alone, crying, and he's like, "Okay, I need to protect the baby," and he takes her to the cemetery. Yeah. So like. Yeah, the dad catches him before he gets before he stabs the kid with the knitting needle, and then he's told to go upstairs. Everyone goes back to their respective rooms, but Lucas comes back, steals the baby, and sneaks out of his bedroom with the baby, and goes to the cemetery. Yeah, and then and that's when everyone's like, "Where's the baby?" and you know, and then, but where is Lucas as well? Because Lucas is supposed to be in bed. Yeah, and, and Dad was the only that's one when who was the father. Of... Yeah, the father is like Lucas took the baby, and he mm-hmm. starts to freak out because that's when they also find the body of Toby, the neighbor, and they, and they're all lamenting the death of Toby, and they're like, "Oh, we gotta tell Lucas. Like, what's what's Lucas gonna think? Because you know, yeah. Toby and Lucas, you know, they're friends. Yeah, but Frank, the dad is. Suspicious of yeah. yeah, he's like, oh, okay. In the back of my mind, I think that maybe this kid did something. And that's when he was like, Lucas killed Toby, like to himself. Like I don't think he told anyone, but he figured it out. He, yeah, he assumes he doesn't have proof, but he's pretty sure that that's what yeah. happened. And that's why he checked the finger, and he sees, and he's like temporarily relieved. And then like the stuff with the the daughter happens, the newborn, and, and then he's like, okay, never mind. This is this is what's going on. Um, but yeah, at the cemetery scene at the at the end with the climax and everything, the the whole the whole glasses versus not glasses stuff gets mixed up, right? So like you know before if he takes the glasses off, then everyone else is blind. Now it's reversed, like right at this end part. Um, that makes things more difficult. So like it's clearly not just like the vision thing and the anxiety. There's like deeper seated issues there that don't really get addressed by the end of this movie. Yeah, that's what, and then it just ends, and I was like, oh, what? Yeah, so like, like I uh, wanted to know additional things. Yeah, they get to the mausoleum type of building, whatever, and then um, Dr. Burns is there. Like, you know, the eye doctor guy he sees in that one scene earlier on. And he's like, he has the knitting needle, and, and like the, the, glassed over eyes because mm-hmm. he's blind in this world even though Lucas has his glasses on and you know he's ready to like stab down and that's when it like cuts to the surgery happening yeah so, so this was all in like the yeah, the did first this part stuff happened did this like what happened? it makes what you think that this even happened at all yeah because the first part of the movie and the second part of the movie could have been all in Lucas's head while he's under anesthesia getting this eye exam or eye surgery. Yeah, I mean, they, they say a couple of things after the surgery is done to indicate that, yes, it all did happen. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the mom was a little bit hesitant to let him hold the... The baby. The, the baby. Um, but, yeah, everything is okay, I guess. And then, like, the end scene is him laying in bed with a nurse who's there to watch over... And she's, like, knitting something as well. And then the end. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know. It, there's a lot of stuff that could be unpacked with this movie. I just don't, it's really tough to say because, you know, like I said, it's not just the blind versus not blind stuff, but it's also, like, the relationship with Rose when you learn that he's half-sisters with Rose and, like, is sexualizing her in this first half. And, you know, like, there's that kind of, like, aspect of things and, 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The relationship with the, the mother and all these other different characters that you have in here that and there's so many different connections like stuff and imagery that happens in the first one comes back in the second half as well and aside from just being in both i don't know what a lot of it means like why is the doctor making the tapestry that was the background of the photograph of jim and rose in the first half you know like yeah aside from us to say okay this is where Lucas may have pulled that into his mind, but from the audience perspective, we saw this stuff first, and now we're seeing it again. Like you know, now we see where the cowboy hat is in the second half. Now mm-hmm. we see where the te- you know this image is in the second half. But so then, which one really came first? I don't know. Yeah, the first or the second half. Yeah. Yeah, like or they like intertwine or. Something. Yeah, and like, why did he have this mass hallucination to begin with? And like, what is what purpose does it really serve? And, and I don't know. It just it didn't really flow as well as well, it wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I like I I was really into it up until like when after he killed Toby, and then things got like things started to escalate with him taking the baby and yeah, yeah it's. The movie had a good premise. I think even just on the surface of here's someone going around attacking blind people, I think is good enough to hold a movie on its own. Yeah, the that's fact like, that they went to a different direction with it is fine. Yeah, that that's fine too. Changing the perspective, but um, but I think some of the imagery and stuff was you know heavy handed and like anything you can think of that has to do with like eyeballs or vision is is thrown in here as like a reference or a metaphor and it's just a little bit too much for me and again didn't have the the resolution it needed to at the end like is it really a happy ending because he clearly struggles with reality besides just yeah and then well because then i was like well okay they they still had to if he did kill the dog so that really happened and then he was about to kill the baby so i mean and then he has to get the surgery so i wanted to know more like mentally does he have to go talk to someone about his mental health (laughs) i I mean he was about to kill a baby it would be nice to see like what he was going to be after the eye surgery like is he really just going to like, did the eye surgery really work, or is he full... Like, it would have been right. interesting if he woke up and he was actually blind. He, like, all his fears did come to life. Yeah, either, either way would have been fine, honestly. I just would have wanted to have a little bit more resolution, like add like another another scene or two to help us understand what is going to be next for him. Yeah. Was was the eye surgery enough to correct whatever was going on in his head mentally? That doesn't seem like it should be the case, but yeah, I don't know, whatever. Um, I don't know. That's all we got. I think I think it was trying to be like Hitchcockian a little bit and just didn't quite do it. Oh, uh, should we talk about cast and crew? Yeah. Okay. We got Mark Peplo here as the writer and director of the movie. This is uh, his first feature that he directed. 
The only other one that he did was his last movie in 1996, Victory, which he also wrote. He's best known as being the Oscar and Golden Globe winner for Best Screenplay for The Last Emperor. He's also written The Passenger, High Season, and Little Buddha. I'm not sure why he stopped working after 1996, but I think he's still alive. Um, Frederick Seidel, if I'm pronouncing that right, probably not. He also did Victory with Mark Peplow and uh, a short movie called Samson and Delia with him as well. So his only writing credits are with Mark Peplow. Frank was played by James Fox, Golden Globe nominee for Promising Newcomer back in the 60s. Uh, here's a long title for, the, for a production called Those Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines or How I Flew from London to Paris in 25 Hours, 11 Minutes. Never heard of it before. Um, he also has a BAFTA win for The Servant for Best Promising Newcomer. BAFTA nomination for A Passage to India. He's been in things like Mark Peplow's High Season, Remains of the Day, Patriot Games, Sexy Beast, and Sherlock Holmes, the 2000-whatever version with uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Miriam was played by Fanny Ardant, a Can nominee for the Golden Camera Award for directing Ashes and Blood in 2009, but also well-known for acting work. She has a Cesar win for Bella Polk. I don't know how to pronounce that. Bella Polk. It was... It was you're close. I'm close. Bella, Bella Polk. <laughs> the, the, the more you say it. I don't know, I don't know French <laughs> pronunciations at all. Sorry. I should have run this by you before we started, but here I'm we are. I'm not like a historian on the French language. More <laughs> than me. Uh, and then also she has a win for a movie called Pedal Deuce. I don't know how I pronounce that either. She's also been nominated for things like Eight Women and for other Cesar nominations for acting. She's going to be in the 1991 movies Nothing But Lies and The Deserter's Wife. She's been in things like Natalie, uh, the Elizabeth movie from 1999 that starred Kate Blanchett as Queen Elizabeth, uh, whatever. Um, the, f- the whatever. <laughs> the part. first? Yes, the first. There you go. I couldn't, I don't know. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. <laughs> She's been <laughs> confidentially, uh, confidentially yours. Uh, Woman Next Door, which she uh, starred in with uh, director. Uh, Francis Truffaut's movie and um, that's where they met and later had uh, an affair and had a child uh, before his death a few years later. Paul McGann played Tony Dalton, the photographer guy who is the killer slash husband, depending on which path you're looking at. He's known for things like With Nail and I, where he played And I. He played uh, he, a role in Alien 3, Three Musketeers, Horatio Hornblower movies. He has a prominent role in those as well. And he's also technically the eighth Doctor Who, uh, where he appeared in the 1996 movie. But okay. no, I don't think any other TV stuff beyond that. He wasn't in the series, but he has played the Doctor in several audio productions, like radio plays and stuff like that, podcasts since then. So he is a Doctor Who um, and more recently, he's also been in the TV show Luther. Uh, and then we have Dan Burns, uh, you know, the, the ophthalmologist slash lead blind guy from the <laughs> clinic, played by Sir Robert Stevens. He's in the 1991 movies The 30 Door Key and The Pope Must Diet. He was knighted in 1995, shortly before his death, uh, and he's the ex-husband of Maggie Smith. We'll talk about him more later when we get to those movies. Uh, lastly, um, well, I'll quickly talk about Lucas, who's played by Ben Keyworth. He only has two other credits listed. One episode of a TV show called The Big Breakfast, and then also a, a movie called Harnessing Peacocks. Neither one of those I've heard of, but it looks like he's out of the industry. Last person we'll talk about is David Thewlis, who plays the locksmith slash Tom Miller, 
he was, you know, magically the, the family friend. Emmy and Golden Globe nominated for his work on the Fargo TV series. BAFTA nominated for the Best Short Film, Hello, Hello, Hello. Best Actor nominations for The Landscapers. A can win for Naked, which he did in a couple years later after this movie. That was like his big breakout role. Razzie nominated in uh, for Basic In-T- Instinct 2 and The Omen, which you know both were released in the same year, and so he got a dual Razzie nomination for those roles. But also well known for things like Island of Dr. Moreau, War Horse, Wonder Woman, Big Lebowski, and several of the Harry Potter movies uh, where he plays which character? Remus Lupin. Remus Lupin, there you go. So here he's a creepy locksmith slash good guy friend of the family. Um, no real awards to mention except there was another film festival where his grand prize nominated for the Avorius Fantastic Film Festival. I'm not really sure. I'm not, not too familiar with that one. Um, but that lost to a movie called Escape from the Liberty Cinema, which is a Polish movie from 1990. So, Didn't win any awards at this Tokyo Film Festival, and we could not find an exact date of this, which sort of leads us into true kind of pop culture. Yeah, so the... Since this was released uh, in October 1991 and we couldn't find a date, I'm just going to talk about the Tokyo International Film Festival and the Tokyo Grand Prix winner for 1991 was the movie City of Hope, directed by John Sayles. Which is on our list. That's, yes. Um, the other movies that were playing at the Tokyo International Film Festival, a couple are on our list and one we've already seen that being a brighter summer day another one is the commitments that's like the non which i know is on our list foreign film yeah yeah and the other one others are a scene at the sea iron maze see that one should be on our list oh it is okay cool that's directed by hiroka yoshida and then another movie called Izdi. Izdi? I-Z-Y-D-I. Hmm. That one doesn't sound familiar. And also, the Tokyo International Film Festival, it began in 1985, and it was an every-other-year event until 1991. And then after 1991, it became a yearly event. Okay. And I'm looking at all the other winners for the past few years like the grand prix winners and i don't know any of them for 2021 it was vera dreams of the sea okay and in 2019 was a danish movie called uncle i'm i don't know if yeah some of these movies i've never even heard of but i'm curious yeah, I mean, that happens sometimes. I mean, I mean like honestly, they just I don't... don't come here. Or they maybe do during other festivals. Yeah, like or they're they just, make... yeah, they're, they're not meant for the U.S. audience as much. I don't know. I mean, I honestly don't like it all that much when places like Cannes and Venice and, and even Chicago International Film Festival will play movies that we know are going to get theatrically released otherwise. I'm fine with that, because... I'd rather it focus on more independent features that. Yeah, but then it's hard to see. 
but yeah, the prestige. Yeah, I understand. But like the, uh, I want it to be like Sundance. You know what I mean? Like, uh, well, I mean Sundance does that problem too now. But like, Vegas in space, for instance, got distribution because it was at Sundance and got this acclaim and appeal. Mm-hmm. These other movies, they already have distribution. They don't need that. That's that's what I have a problem with. Is like. You're taking a slot away, in my opinion, oh, from someone independent who could get discovered okay. and then get released to the masses yeah, because like of showing, its appeal. And... Showing a, a movie from a very famous director that is coming out of retirement or something. Yeah, but I understand why the film festivals do it because, you know, they can get the big names to possibly come there for a Q&A. It increases ticket sales and appeal yeah. to the, the festival in general, but at the same time, it's also... I don't know, like, there, there's enough movies that you would hope at some point the festival would be enough of a draw in itself, and then you can... For you to see, un, like, And then let not companies well hopefully come through and, and pick them up and distribute them from there. Yeah. Kind of, like, by word of mouth and be like, oh, I saw this movie at this festival and it was amazing and I yeah. wish it, the whole world can see it. I mean, that's kind of, like, how we... When we used to go to the film, yeah. the Chicago, like a lot of the movies. I never saw the ones that I knew were going to hit theaters in a month after. Yeah. Yeah, but it was also really hard to find to get like DVDs of. Yeah, the, the stuff I, that we saw. Yeah, the, the stuff, stuff that, that we, we see saw. Sometimes has never been released. Because yeah, there's, there's a some few of the that movies, I would love to watch again and I can't. Yeah, me too. Like Summer in the Golden Valley, I think, is one that I think about most, which I don't think you saw with me either. It's like a, I think it's like a Czechoslovakian movie or something like that, but it was really good and um, no way to watch it. It's impossible to find. Um, that's that's, but that's what makes me kind of. It's a dual-edged sword. Mad, because yeah. <laughs> I want to like rewatch them. And I mean, one of them we did see that we do have the DVD of the the Taste of Tea, which I'm glad because I love. Yeah, that yeah. Some of them get like international releases, and you have to import them as well. So yeah, stuff like Taste of Tea, like Taxidermia, and like sometimes they take a little bit of time to come here. But yeah. Um, but I know that for the longest time, for, Spring I think was also in that category. Yeah, where it didn't for get... the longest time I was trying to find Journey into Bliss. For to get yeah. for you for your birthday because yeah. I know you love that movie <laughs> yeah. and uh, and there's some problematic scenes in it but overall like, but, it's such a weird like out there movie that... like I would want to watch that again yes. and you can't you can't watch it it's like you see it once and then that's it and it's like in your brain but you're like oh I really want to see this and I yeah. wish other people saw it there's no way to share it yeah except for like you and whoever you went with and whoever was in the audience that's like. I mean, I get it's cool, like a, whatever. But I think, long, long story short, I think that maybe part of the reason why you don't know some of these movies from Tokyo International Film Festival is maybe they do focus a little bit more attention on the unknown movies rather than the bigger names sometimes. Or, you know, they're at least more eligible for awards than maybe like the, if you have like a U.S. release that appears there's like a special presentation maybe it's not eligible for the grand prix award so yeah yeah so moving on i'm not doing tv well sort of maybe i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but i'm not doing music but i i was just looking up what happened in october since it's this month is like our halloween horror month 
I googled what happened on Halloween in 1991 and I found out that there was a major Halloween blizzard of 1991. So this snowstorm hit part of the northern part of Minnesota down into parts of Wisconsin but the major cities that were hit with this snowstorm were like the Twin Cities and Duluth. Duluth is you know further north like on right where Lake Superior is and that started it started to snow in Duluth at 1 p.m. on October 31st 1991 and it did not end until 1 p.m. on November 3rd. So Mm. continuous snowfall for like three, four days. And the total snowfall was 36.9 inches, which is like three feet. But I kind of went down a rabbit hole (laughs) again. (laughs) And I also found like a YouTube clip of a local Minnesotan news channel last year because they were talking about the 30th anniversary of this storm how it was it's still people still remember it to this day mm-hmm. and it was the meteorologist who was ta- who was the meteorologist for that news station from 1991 talking to the current meteorologist that is on that Minnesota news station and there it's like it's a 25 minute long thing I didn't watch the whole thing but it was from what I watched it was very interesting it was just them talking about you know what a eventful night that was and they show clips of people still dressing their kid like the kids were still trick-or-treating even though it was starting to snow and blizzardy yeah and you see kids like in like snowsuits, but their costumes over it, trick or treating, and then they show the aftermath, where it's people getting stuck, you know, in traffic, and people they interviewed people saying, "Oh, I, I got out of work and I couldn't even, you know, go home." Yeah. Like some people couldn't even leave their jobs, or and some people couldn't even get to their jobs, and then they show certain parts where I thought was funny where it was like pizza delivery people delivering the pizza by snowblower Mm. I thought that was funny and kind of cute but then also another thing that happened around the same time like the storm this storm in part was like a nut caused by another weather pattern that was happening in the east coast which is called the perfect storm which is based on the book which the movie came out that movie the perfect storm is based on the one that came out in the year two like 20 years ago the one i've never seen it the one with george clooney and mark Wahlberg, Mm -hmm. which that storm was (laughs) so while this storm was going on the perfect storm was happening in the east coast and that's when you know the book was based loosely 
the book was written by it wasn't written by because I never saw the movie and I all I know it's like about you know like a fishing boat and these people were like we we don't care that the weather is shitty and you know like a typical you shouldn't go out because the weather is bad but they're like oh but we haven't caught fish in x amount of days and we really need to fish so we're just gonna go out through this storm anyways type Mm -hmm. of thing so it's like everyone dies except for one person and I thought that person wrote this book, but, but no, <laughs> the person that survived, the book was written by Sebastian Younger, who he is, it's, I mean, it is a non, it's a creative nonfiction book. So it's like the movie, The Perfect Storm is like loosely based off of what really happened. Right. So, like, these people aren't necessarily real, but this storm did happen. So, I I thought that was interesting because I was like, oh, well, I thought the the movie Perfect Storm was based off the person that survives stories, but no. So, we'll move to rankings and ratings. Where on your one to five star scale are you going to put Afraid of the Dark? I mean, I mean, I was going to give this, I was going to, I was in between two and a three. Okay. But I think I'm going to give it a two. You talked yourself down a little bit? I was hard, like, the, I really liked that I was into it until, like, the last, this is what gets me with a lot of horror movies where yeah and this I isn't get, super horror yeah this is this is psychological thriller yeah, yeah. whatever but anything like thriller horror where i get like so into it and then i get disappointed by the end like f- the last 15 minutes always like pisses me off so much that i'm like disappointed sure but yeah it's like like the first half i was into like it was okay i i get it like this is cool. Like, let's see what goes on with this. And then, like, it switches. Yeah, I was fine with the switch. And I was okay with the switch, too, yeah. once I f- figured out that it was a switch. But, yeah, I, I'm, like, yeah, the ending just kind of. I don't know if it just you're moved too just, fast or what. You're or just, kind of just like, okay, that's it. Like, you need some sort of closure with yeah, some it of these like things. Yeah, it feels like there's so many different, like, psychological themes that it's trying to explore or, you know, like thoughts in this kid's head and, and like you know ideas that they're trying to resolve within themselves and conflicts within themselves that they're trying to resolve and then nothing really gets to happen at the end so yeah on my zero to four star scale um i'm gonna give it a three because i think it was made well you know like the cinematography wasn't you know like you're not gonna see a whole lot of Oddly, not a lot of play of like light and shadows and stuff, but you do see. I don't know. I like the way that they play with like the telescope and the perspectives of things and everything. But um, yeah, just it wasn't. It wasn't a satisfying ending. It felt. It felt unfinished and rushed. Uh, every movie's worth watching once. Would you watch this? Watch this again? Um, if it was part of some movie festival. <laughs> Like, if they did another festival, yeah. 
I mean, if I had, I don't know, if there's like a Q&A or something like or that. Or like with some, some sort of criterion. Yeah, I, I think I would need to see it with additional context presented to me. Because you could easily go back and watch this movie again if you like it enough to try to search for different clues. You know, yeah, like, okay, what are some of the recurring visuals? I and like movies appear? like that where... But, movies that don't really make sense and you want to make sense of it. Yeah, or like what we're talking about like Barton Fink and, and like Fried Green Tomatoes or something like that where you have the ability to possibly go back and look at things in a different perspective once you know the end. I just don't think there'd be enough value for me to do it on my own. I, I think feel like we I already need a guide. Yeah, I think we just know the end and the end was like, oh, he just gets his surgery anyways. Yeah. And... It's not going to provide a whole lot of value to be like, oh, there was that cowboy hat. Like, oh, yeah, okay, there's there's that poster. Yeah, we're not trying to figure out who the slasher was in the beginning part. Like, yeah. And, and seeing different objects is not going to give us more insight as to what's going on in, in the character's mind. So, but maybe we're wrong, but we would need like an academic like... type of person to kind of like convince us so that that'd be how i would watch it again i mean okay this also i know you haven't seen this movie and this reminded me of lost highway because lost mm. highway is like two different movies in one okay. it's like the first part it leads up to something a traumatic thing happens and then all of a sudden it starts all over again with like the same people and but that movie I watch over and over and over again to try to make sense because I was like, wait, how did he get to whatever mm-hmm. in that traumatic part? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also kind of like, yeah. it doesn't have that type of structure or even kind of like Donnie Darko. I'm trying, now I'm starting to just think of like yeah, this, these traumatic there's, events there's and then not enough... things shift and then it turns into another perspective i guess yeah there's not enough actual connections between the first half and the second half of this to go looking for more yeah there's there's no correlations to say like where these timelines might meld or if it's just honestly just pure fantasy for the first half so if you out there do want to watch afraid of the dark as of this recording in october 2022 it's available on digital rental vhs or dvd as always check your local listings you can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can email us at 1991moviewind@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, YouTube. Just search 1991movierewind or go to 1991movierewind.com for the full list of movies, all in the show notes, and more.